They're giving you a man at the same time. Very rare, huh? Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Alhamdulillahi Awalan wa Akhira Alhamdulillahi Fil Ula wa Fil Akhira Alhamdulillahi Fil Sarra Alhamdulillahi Fil Darra والحمد لله على كل حال وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله قل اللهم مالك الملك تؤتي الملك من تشاء وتنزع الملك ممن تشاء وتعز من تشاء وتذل من تشاء بيدك الخير إنك على كل شيء قدير وأشهد أن سيدنا وحبيب نفوسنا وعزيز قلوبنا محمد صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عبده ورسوله وما كان لمؤمن ولا مؤمنة إذا قضى الله ورسوله أمرا أن يكون لهم الخيارة من أمرهم من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له اللهم اجعلنا من الذين يستمعون القول فيتبعون أحسنه أما بعد أيها المؤمنون We, the Muslims, need to catch up with our Allah-given responsibilities. We are lagging behind and the symptoms are very clear. And one of the most important symptoms of our discrepancies is the obvious divisions that have set in almost like concrete throughout the centuries causing many Muslims to feel either an inferiority complex or a superiority disease. In the last khutbah that I gave here, I began to speak about some of these issues that are in violation of Allah's and His Prophet's concern and demand for the solidarity and consolidation of the Muslims. There have been these fiqhi issues that many Muslims prioritize in contravention to the ayat in the hadith that request and demand from us to be together. واعتصموا بحبل الله جميعا ولا تفرقوا An ayah that is clear telling us to be with each other and not divided So why are we not with each other and why are we divided? And when you begin to think about it you begin to trace it to making 
fiqhi issues equivalence or rather they overrule the ayat of the Quran that's what that's where we are and so we're going to continue to look at these fiqhi issues that are divisive they're not supposed to be divisive the fuqaha who exerted themselves to come up with those opinions and those judgments did not mean for them to divide the Muslims like the Muslims are divided now so let's take a look at some of these issues in the overall contents of the fuqaha what is called al-fiqh al-islami with all its schools of thought there are two issues <coughs> one of them is called these are fiqhi terminologies one of them is called mustahab and the other one is called makruh mustahab is something desirable something that is commended to do something that you would get rewarded for doing it's not a farida it's not mandatory but it's something that if you do it's that much better on the uh, on the flip side of this meaning con juxtaposed with it is makruh something that is undesirable something which which you should try to avoid and not do now we're not talking about something that is halal and something else that is haram mustahab or mashru'a that's another word for it is less than what is halal and makruh something that is objectionable that's another meaning of the word makruh something that is objectionable is less than what is haram okay so we cleared the definitions on what is mustahab and what is makruh now when we come to these fiqhi issues some things that we do every day when Muslims come together. We're going to have Salat al-Eid this coming week. <coughs> Most likely this coming Tuesday. In this place, the same in the street area on the sidewalk. And as you may have noticed in all of the previous Salat al-Eid, Salat al-Eid has no adhan but it ha and it has no iqama but according to a, a particular Islamic school of thought to alert the musalleen the prayer attendees to stand up and follow the imam in the prayer they say in this particular school of thought As-salatu jami'ah Saying as-salatu jami'ah is mustahab In the Shafi'i school of thought In the Maliki school of thought The same words As-salatu jami'ah is makruh On Fridays, when the Imam who's going to give the khutbah, when he ascends the minbar, in some Islamic schools of thought, he says to the musalleen, the prayer attendees, he says, Assalamu alaikum. And he may add, وَرَحْمَتُ And he may add, وَبَرَكَاتُهُ That is mustahab in one school of thought. Now, let me be uh, precise. Instead of, you know, someone's going to say, oh, you're saying one school of thought. Okay, I'll tell you. 
It is mustahab in a Shafi'i school of thought. In the Maliki school of thought, it is makruh. Once the Imam ascends the minbar, he cannot greet those who are in the masjid. He can't say, Assalamu alaikum. It is permissible in the Maliki school of thought before the Imam goes up the minbar to turn around to the musalleen, to those who are attending the prayer, and say, Assalamu alaikum. Greet them with the greetings of Assalam. And once you are greeted with the greetings, per the ayah of the Quran, you have to answer the greeting and say, Wa alaykum salam. Wa the ayah, wa ida huyitum bitahiyatin, fahayu bi mithliha aw ahsana minha. So one faqih is saying this is mustahab, it's better to do it. Another faqih is saying it's makruh, it's better not to do it. Now, is this going to become a matter of fighting among the Muslims? In the Salat al-Eid that is coming up, there's multiple takbirat in Salat al-Eid. Between one takbirah and the next, what do you do? You remain silent? Or you say certain sentences, certain phrases, Subhanallah, walhamdulillah, wa la ilaha illallah. Do you, or as-salatu ala nabi. Do you say these from one takbirah to the next takbirah? Or don't you say them? The Shafi'i school of thought says it is mustahab to say them. It's recommended to say them. The Maliki school of thought says no. You don't say anything. You remain silent. Meaning silent to yourself because obviously you're saying this not out loud. In Salat al-Eid when we are saying the takbirat, the multiple takbirat, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allah, do you raise your hand when you say, before you say each takbirah, or do you not raise your hands before you say each takbirah? The Shafi'i school of thought says it is recommended to raise your hands. Just like when you say takbirat al-ahram, you raise your two hands uh, on each side of your uh, of your head. So the Shafi'i said it is mustahab. The Maliki school of thought says it is makruh. You should not do that. It's not a sin if you do it, but you just shouldn't do it. Now these issues, of course a people, a person who has studied the Islamic schools of thought, he can identify a person's madhab by looking at the way he or she performs their salah. Okay, that's fine. There's no problem with that. But why should anyone get upset and then feel a distance between him or her and the other Muslim who does whatever it is, in another fashion. So, raising your hands during the takbirat is something that is mustahab in the Shafi'i school of thought, in the Hanafi school of thought, in the Hanbali school of thought, but it is makruh in the Maliki school of thought. Let's not, you know, make a big issue about this. Let's grow up, brothers and sisters. In the Salah itself, there are takbirat. There's takbirat al-ihram. Everyone raises their hand during, in the first takbirah in the Salah. At the beginning of the Salah, it's called takbirat al-ihram. Everyone raises their hand. 
How about the other takbirat in the in the salah? The takbira when we go into the ruku'ah, the takbira when we uh, stand up. Do we raise our hands or do we not raise our hands? The, the, the Hanafi and Maliki school of thought say it's makruh to do so. The others say no, it's mustahab to do so. So why? Now, these are, these are legitimate opinions. I'm not going to come and say one of them is more legitimate than the other. Besides, who, who is it in Islamic history, fiqh history, or just history itself, who is it who can say and prove with certainty that the Prophet did not do it both ways? After the Qira'ah of Al-Fatiha, the Imam reads the Fatiha in the Salah. After that, does the Ma'moom, the person, the Muslim who's following, does he read anything or does he remain silent? Once again, there's differences of opinion. It is The Maliki school of thought says, it is makruh, you don't do anything like that. The Hanafi school of thought goes further, say it's haram to do something like that. Here's where we get into issues that right now it begs Muslims to come together and do away with this serious discrepancy such as this. And we'll probably in a future khutbah sometime, we will get to the point where some fuqaha say something is, you have to do it. Because if you don't do it, your sha'ira, your ibadah is null and void. And the others say, if you do it, if you don't do it, your salah or your siyam or your hajj is null and void. But right now we're not dealing with these contradictions, out and out contradictions. We're dealing with what is mustahab. And what is makruh? The rest of the fuqaha, they say if you read anything from the Qur'an after that ma'moom, it is mustahab. All of us, when we pray, we go down to the sajda. How do you go down to the sajda? There are different ways of going down to the sajda. Some fuqaha say, you go down beginning with your knees. Your knees are the first thing that will reach the ground. And then your hands, and then your face, and then your nose. That's the way they've defined going down into a sajda. The, the, uh, most of the schools of thought, that's the way they outline how to perform the sajda. The Maliki school of thought says, no, you go down hands first, not knees first. And one of them says to the other, the way you're doing it is makruh. And now this becomes an issue with people who don't have enough information it becomes an issue to feel that, oh, that other Muslim is not doing it the way I'm doing it, so he's wrong or she's wrong. No, no one is wrong. Everyone is right in the way they are doing it, provided no one is forcing the other to do it in a particular way. The wrong in all of this is to force the other to do it the way you think it is right. That's what's wrong. And then there are minor details in all of this. Some schools of thought agree that you go down first on your knees and then what follows, like we described it. But when you stand up, 
from the sajda, you do it relying on your hands. Now, has anyone ever thought about this? These fuqaha, they had all of these opinions and were not trying to belittle the opinions of the fuqaha. They did their best. But in all of this, did anyone ever ask themselves that the people who were praying with the Prophet, their physique was damaged, their bodies were damaged. They were damaged from a tough life. Either some of them were poor, or some of them were handicapped, or they were damaged from the military obligation. Some of them had wounds in their, on their arms, their hands, their legs, their feet. How did they perform the sajda? Anyone ever ask that question in the middle of all of this? No. And that goes to show you, we're not thinking enough. And if we do, we begin to allow ourselves these differences without feeling that someone is superior and someone else is inferior. In the second, in rather, in the first and in the third rakah, when a person is standing up from a salah, we, let's say we're praying Salat al-Dhuhr, four rak'at. The second and the fourth rak'ah, they have a tashahud in them. But the first and third rak'ah, you are required to go directly from a sajda position to a standing position. Now, is there a moment of hesitation in that? You stay just for a couple of seconds on your knees before you stand up, or you stand up directly. And this is yet another area in which we have some faqih saying it is mustahab to do it one way, and others saying it is makruh to do it that way. This is common. So what do you do? You say the other person's salah is invalid because he's not doing it the way I was taught it should be done or the way I think it should be done. When we come to a salah, we have to express our intention. You just can't go into a salah without knowing that you're going like you're going let's let's say i'm going to pray salat al-asr i begin the prayer without saying i'm going to pray salat al-asr my intention is to pray to salat al-asr all of the fuqaha agree that there has to be an intention here to perform salat whatever salat it is or whatever duty it is you have to have an intention for that you just can't do it happen by way of happenstance so do you, do you verbalize this intention before takbirat al-ihram or do you not verbalize it? One school of thought says you do, the other school of thought says you can say it in yourself. You don't really have to speak it with your tongue. This, should this become an issue of division? The same thing as salatu ala nabi in a tashahud al-awwal in a salah after the second rakah there's the first tashahud after that tashahud meaning after we say ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna muhammadan rasulullah after i say wa ashhadu anna muhammadan rasulullah should i say allahumma salli ala muhammadin wa ali muhammad or should i not say it some school of thought, thought says it is mustahab and believe it or not there's a school of thought that says it is makruh. Do I, do I begin to make right now, generate some bad feelings because the other Muslim disagrees with me on this issue? Let us wake up. Let us grow up.
When we read Surah Al-Fatiha, you may have realized in your life, we have a lot of years in our lives, that certain Imams, when they begin reading Surah Al-Fatiha, they begin without saying, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And others begin with saying, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. And this is attribute, you can trace this back to their schools of thought. A Shafi'i school of thought says, you have to say, it is highly recommended to say it. The Maliki schools of thought say, no. In the Fard Salah, it is makruh. The Shafi'i school of thought considers the Basmala, meaning Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, to be an ayah from Surah Al-Fatiha. Now, this is just a sample of the differences we have that are, I don't care which, which performance you agree with, they are all legitimate. And you can't delegitimize another Muslim because he performs his rituals in a way that you do not perform it in. You cannot do that. So now, the beginning, the picture is beginning to become clear. And that is, at the beginning of Islamic history, when Muslims who were ingrained in the teachings of Allah and His Prophet, and were very serious about justice and equality and freedom, When they were very serious about this, and we had our internal issues because of these, not because of the way a person is praying, no. It's not because the way of the person is performing their hajj. This did not exist in those beginning generations of Muslims. So when did it begin? It began when the rulers, the monarchs of Bani Umayyah, they wanted to distract the Muslims from the foundational, the essential issues. And so they brought, they, they built up these issues and they made them, when, when you have power and you have wealth, you can penetrate the public's mind and you can make what is supposed to be important you can make it insignificant the issues of justice and equality became insignificant and then these issues oh how are you praying let's look where does he put his hand when he's praying how does he go into his or her sajda what do the how do they begin when they read a surah in the Quran, do they begin by saying Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim or don't? All of these issues now became the central and major issues. And then they accumulated. This began to grow throughout the generations and centuries until now it, be it has become our burden. Can you believe during the reign of those dynasties when those who were in power they sensed that a group of Muslims are not trivialized by these ritualistic issues these were the Mu'tazilis the Mu'tazilis they didn't fall for all of this so it is reported Al-Mutawakkil, one of the autocrats of Bani Al-Abbas, killed 40,000 Mu'tazilis in one day. What is this? And 
someone who says, okay, let's let's take a look at ourselves. These are lessons. If we don't take a look at them, these lessons are lost. And then we're going to do this all over again. And why do you think we have the Dawash today, the Daishi types? From things like this. They're built up so in their mind, if a person disagrees on certain ritualistic issues, they'll go to that particular masjid that disagrees with them. They'll put explosives there and they'll kill 30, 130, 500 people. On what basis? Why are they doing things like this? Because this termite information that has divided the Muslims and has been working its way through our societies and communities for all of these years, it causes these butchers to slaughter Muslims, cut their heads off, put their heads on their bodies, or just grab the heads by the hair and demonstrate it in front of the cameras. Where did that come from? It came from the accumulation of this deviation throughout all of these years. And it's about time that we begin to ask, to think, to reason. An ayah in the Quran says, La ikraha fi deen. Everyone's familiar with this ayah. I don't think I even need to translate it. You know what it means. La ikraha fi deen. Every Muslim knows that's an ayah in Surah Al Baqarah. Everyone. Or virtually everyone. And then. We are quoted a hadith, Umirtu an uqatil an nas hatta yashadu an la ilaha illallah wa anna muhammadan rasulullah. They say the Prophet said, He is ordered, meaning ordered by Allah, to fight people until they bear witness that there is no deity authority except Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. That's what they say is a hadith. And here is what we know is an ayah. You are justifying wars and battles and killing people because you deny them the freedom of conscience that is guaranteed to them in the Quran, in the ayat of the Quran. Something is wrong here. And when something is wrong, we have to correct it. And the first step in correcting that is to have the moral courage to say we were wrong. إن الله تواب رحيم الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع النعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم. Now in our real world, brothers and sisters, we have those people who have power and they have wealth. And because they have power and they have wealth, they have banks and they have militaries. And because they have banks and they have militaries, they begin to behave like demigods or semi-gods on earth. And they think that they can still get away with over a thousand years of deviations. But they're becoming desperate and they're becoming almost narcissistic about their precarious hold on power and wealth. 
the Saudi exemplification, the Saudi exemplar of this monopoly of power and wealth and misleading the rest of the Muslims has taken a turn to the worst when they came down on their own ulama and not the dummy ulama they have their dummy ulama I'm sorry to use the combination of these two words but it is an observation of a fact in life there are dummy ulama so their dummy ulama remain to be their spokespersons who try to put, put the best construct on what the Saudi misrulers are doing one of those ulama who was thrown behind the bars almost a year ago his son he said his father has been transferred from the prison of the Haban that's a prison in the Jidda area to another prison in Al-Riyadh area called Al-Ha'ir. And he has been, there's no due process there. You think there's courts, you think you can get a lawyer, and you think you can make your case in a court of law, you're mistaken. They don't have that. And there are accusations coming at him left and right. And then we have their committee of senior ulama, the official Saudi appointed committee of high-ranking scholars who are saying, counseling the Muslims who are going to Mecca for the Hajj, you should stay away from hostile slogans what's a hostile slogan could they please explain to us what they mean by a hostile slogan is the are the ayat in the quran hostile slogans bara'a surat bara'a are those hostile slogans if someone was to repeat them in the hajj This past week, there is a well-known scholar in Mecca. His name is Nasir al-Umar. He was also taken to prison. And then accusations after that followed. He is an Ikhwan Muslimin. He is an agent of Iran. He is this, that, and the other. The, the exp... The, Clarification we have for these Saudi unbalanced procedures is they are desperate. I think they feel that time is running against them. And now there are voices that are beginning to point their fingers of accusation against other prominent scholars in that society Al-Ara'ur, Al-Arifi, Aid Al-Qarni The rulers in the Arabian Peninsula have embarked on a very dangerous policy and that dangerous policy forget about for the moment forget about their internal instability but now they are facing certain influential governments in the world that they had befriended in these past decades the European Union is telling the Saudi government, you better take a look at 
what you are doing to human rights activists in your country. And then the Canadian government stands up for those who are human rights proponents in that kingdom. And what is, okay, it expels the Canadian ambassador. It says it doesn't want any more Canadian exports. Canadian exports zero point two percent one fifth of one percent of its exports go to that kingdom. What what is that? Okay, you withdraw your ambassador. You don't want any more exports. Fifteen thousand Saudis studying in Canadian universities are told to leave. Some 800 of them are physicians wrapping up their studies or doing their post-studies presence in hospitals and other medical practices. This Saudi Arabia that has sold out to the Zionists and the imperialists has increased its military budget by around 35% in the first half of this year. And its military budget per year is about $70 billion. What are they doing getting all of this money Has that kingdom ever fought a common enemy of the Muslims? In all its history, has it ever fought any Zionist or imperialist force? And the straightforward answer to that is no. Who did they fight then? In all of their history, who did they fight? They fought Muslims going to Hajj. They fought themselves. They are fighting other Muslims in other countries. And way back 1400 years ago, they fought the Prophet. That's their history. And now they want to impose their Eid on us. Of course, it's probably going to be... They're known to change their mind a couple of days before the Eid. But the way it stands right now, they declared that the Eid is going to be this coming Tuesday. And we're going to be here on Tuesday, if that's when they're going to have the Eid in this Islamic center under occupation. Not because we are convinced that Tuesday is the Eid. But we are convinced Muslims should remain in principled positions speaking truth to those who are abusing power and wealth such as is the case with those who have taken over the Islamic Center by their money and their connections. They tell us 1.6 million Muslims have come from other parts of the world, meaning from outside of Saudi Arabia, to the Hajj. That's an insignificant amount of Muslims. There should be tens of millions of Muslims in the Hajj. Not 1.6 or 2.6 million Muslims. All the Muslims in the world, there's only 2.6 million who make it to the Hajj. That kingdom is not living in peace. And it shall not live in peace in the coming months and years. There's been exchanges of fire during this time. Remember, we have Al-Ashhur Al-Hurum. We have a calendar arms-free time zone. And this is one of those months. And what do they do in Yemen? They drop bombs on... A school bus killing dozens of students and injuring scores of others in a shahar al-haram. Now, any one of their scholars 
remind the public that we are living in a shahr al-haram? Is anyone else in this world cognizant of a shahr al-haram? At the same time that the Saudis and the Emiratis are bombing the people in Yemen, what are Emirati pilots doing flying over Gaza? There's been reports that Emirati pilots are flying over Gaza. What are they doing there? Has the military and political engagement and marriage between the Saudi type of Islam and the Zionist imperialist type of Judeo-Christianity, has it reached the degree that they think we cannot think for ourselves? This is the 21st Jumu'ah in which the Palestinians have been going out to the borders between them and the thieves of the Holy Land and also in Al-Quds and also around Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa and in other areas in the West Bank. This is real today. Add to the hundreds who have been killed and the thousands who have been injured in the past 21 weeks. What do you think when we go to Hajj, when Muslims go to Hajj, they can't express their pain to each other? And that becomes politicizing the Hajj. If a Muslim from Palestine or a Muslim from any other war area was to meet another Muslim, if they were to meet themselves in Palestine, in, I'm sorry, in and around the Kaaba, they are not permitted to express the pain to themselves? Is that politicizing the Hajj? They don't tire saying this Hajj, this year's slogan, the official Saudi slogan was, is Hajj al-Karama. The Hajj of Dignity. What dignity is there in looking at Muslims being killed and being told you can't say a word? What dignity is, that, is there in that? This is what we are living. Their foreign minister who used to be the ambassador here in Washington said, Saudi Arabia, listen to the lie. A flat, straight in your face lie. He says, Saudi Arabia does not interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. What are you doing in Yemen? What are you doing in Bahrain? What are you doing in Syria, in Iraq, in Libya, in Somalia? in Egypt, what are you doing in all of these countries and other countries? We don't, he says, we don't interfere in their internal affairs. You're bombing and killing populations in other countries and you say you don't, how, how, is this, and then we're supposed to make believe nothing is happening. For the first time since 2015, Kuwait now permits Muslims to have open air salah of Eid. It'll show you how scared they were. Now they feel a little comfortable and say, okay, you Muslims, you can pray outside. All of these are running scared as they should. And more fear and terror in in their hearts and in their decisions. We Muslims, we will overcome. And if you, the pseudo-Muslims and the pseudo-Christians and the pseudo-Jews, if you think that your time of colonization 
is still in progress, your mind is in the wrong place, and may you all collapse into the inferno of the coming life and the coming world. Allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna tiba'ah. Wa arina al-batila batilan warzuqna ijtinabah. وَلَا تَجْعَلْهُ مُلْتَبِسًا عَلَيْنَا وَاجْعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا رَبَّنَا إِنَّنَا سَمِعْنَا مُنَادِيًا يُنَادِي لِلْإِيمَانِ أَنْ آمِنُوا بِرَبِّكُمْ فَآمَنَّا رَبَّنَا فَاغْفِرْ لَنَا ذُنُوبَنَا وَكَفِّرْ عَنَّا سَيِّئَاتِنَا وتوفنا مع الأبرار ربنا وآتنا ما وعدتنا على رسلك ولا تخزنا يوم القيامة إنك لا تخلف الميعاد ربنا صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وآل محمد وصل وسلم وبارك على إبراهيم وآل إبراهيم في العالمين إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمركم أن تؤدوا الأمانات إلى أهلها وإذا حكمتم بين الناس أن تحكموا بالعدل إن الله نعم يعظكم به إن الله كان سميعا بصيرا ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة Allah, 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 Allah,